0: If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tank and see this content in all its glory. Columbia and Rapture, two places separated by time and realities, but also connected through constants and variables. Let's talk about the events that unfolded within these two cities. To understand how they connect, we have to know their stories. And to best tell their stories, I won't keep any great reveals concealed for the finality of the tellings. So... Let's get right into it. At the Battle of Wounded Knee, which would better be referred to as a massacre in truthfulness, soldiers of the United States Army murdered between 250 and 300 of a group from the Lakota tribe. Roughly 200 of those killed were women and children. The history of what led to this massacre is long and detailed. I highly encourage you to research it, but to quickly summarize, A 7th Cavalry detachment intercepted a group of the Lakota nation en route to the safety of the Pine Ridge Reservation. The Lakota group was ordered to stop and set up camp next to Wounded Knee Creek, and the following day reinforcements from the 7th Cavalry arrived, the entirety of the remaining cavalry, nearly 500 men in total. They descended on the Lakota to take their weapons, which of course led to raised tensions between the two groups. Their intent was to disarm them and remove them from the area via a train. There are debates as to who shot first. Of course, the army placed the blame squarely on the Lakota. But in the end, close range weaponry was used to murder the isolated women and children, and half the Lakota men who still held their weapons didn't even shoot them. Between 250 and 300 of the original 350 Lakota group were dead. Between 30 and 35 of the 7th Cavalry were killed. So imagine what kind of person Booker Dewitt is. To have been involved in this massacre at the age of 16, and to have been called the White Injun afterwards, because he was so brutal and violent towards the Lakota during the massacre, Booker Dewitt, who himself had Indian blood, burned men, women, and children alive just to avoid being stigmatized for his own heritage. This massacre and the guilt Booker felt took him to the riverside, to baptism. Two men emerged from this river in different realities. The man who refused baptism, who remains Booker DeWitt. Or the man who accepts the baptism, Zachary Hale Comstock. Let's talk about the man who rejects baptism, Booker DeWitt. After his stint with the Army in 1892, Booker took up work with the Pinkertons in New York at the age of 18. He became well known for his violent methods in ending labor strikes. That year, he met a girl, fell in love, possibly married. In 1893, they had a baby girl, though the child's mother, Booker's partner, died during the birth, leaving Booker alone to raise baby Anna. He lasted at least a few months with the baby. Booker became depressed he took to drinking excessively and gambling his money away. He fell into crippling debt. When a man named Robert Lutess, acting in the interests of Zachary Hale Comstock arrived at his door and offered to buy baby Anna, well, Booker didn't turn him down. And yes, Robert Lutess was representing Comstock, the version of that younger Booker DeWitt who accepted baptism after the massacre at Wounded Knee. Let's talk about Robert Lutess and his self-sister twin Rosalind, the Quantum Twins, the same person from different realities united in Comstock's reality. Rosalind was fascinated by the ideas of alternate realities at a young age, she was destined to be a physicist. As an adult, she created something she called the Lutes Field, a quantum mechanic which suspended atoms and removed them from the effects of gravity. This caught the attention of our mysterious Zachary Comstock, who funded Rosalind's research into the Lutes field, which he intended to use on a city one day, but more on that later. Rosalind Lutes’s studies were being duplicated in another reality by herself, but a male version of herself, her quantum twin, Robert. They communicated through Morse code, working together to create the Lutes device, a machine which could open tears to other realities, doorways really. They opened their first tear, and Robert crossed into Rosalind's reality. Robert Lutece is the one who bought baby Anna from Booker DeWitt at the request of Zachary Comstock. But again, more on that later. Now we return to the story of Booker. Robert Lutece purchased baby Anna to wipe away Booker's debts. But Booker gave chase after Robert departed with the baby, intent on getting her back out of guilt for his choice. Booker found them at a tear, that door between realities, and he fought with Zachary Comstock to get Anna back. But Rosalind Lutece closed the tear. Baby Anna's pinky was left on the other side in this separate reality with Booker. Comstock took the rest of her. Booker carved baby Anna's initials into the back of his hand, AD, as a reminder and a punishment for what he did. Now, let's talk about Comstock the former, Booker DeWitt, that accepted baptism. After he became Comstock, he spoke little of his past, making him an enigma to the public eye, but because of Wounded Knee, he was praised as a military hero, which carried him far when he engaged with American politics. Not only that, but Comstock was deeply, deeply religious, and became an extremely popular preacher, another boost in his political influence in America. Comstock convinced Congress to fund the building of his visionary city of Columbia in 1891. And remarkably, they agreed. The government funded the creation of Columbia, which was completed in 1893. And using Rosalind Lutece's Lutesfield technology, Columbia was made to fly. Comstock's religious beliefs became the backbone of Columbia and its American exceptionalism. The ruling political party of Colombia was the founders. They were ultra nationalists, white supremacists, militant, and fanatic Christians with a serious hard on for the founding fathers. Good combination of uh oh, equipped with their very own floating city. I'd never seen Benjamin Franklin depicted with a six pack before entering Colombia. And did you know what a bad, bad man Abraham Lincoln was? <clears throat> Anyways, it was the same year, 1893, that the quantum twins, Robert and Rosalind Lutes, were united by opening that first tear. It was also that same year, 1893, that baby Anna was taken from Booker's reality into Comstock's reality. But why would Comstock want baby Anna? Well, remember the Lutes device, that machine that opened doorways or tears between realities. Well, you see, Comstock really liked that machine, and he used it compulsively to peek into the possibilities and the future. He used it to construct his own prophecies, telling the populace that he was receiving guidance from an archangel, but no, he was using science. And this science fried his swimmers. He became sterile, and eventually it would age him at about twice the rate he should have. Comstock wanted an heir which would continue his bloodline and become a part of his scripture and prophecy. But, again, his swimmers were fried, so he ordered Robert Lutes to get Booker's baby, to bring her to Columbia. We know that he was successful, that baby Anna's pinky was lopped off in the process, but there were consequences for this in Columbia. Comstock's wife, Annabelle, despised the baby and resented her presence. She accused Rosalind Lutess of having an affair with Comstock. That baby Anna, now named Elizabeth, was their offspring, and she wanted nothing to do with Elizabeth. But Comstock used his wife Annabelle as a tool of propaganda. The public was told that Lady Comstock bore the child to term in one week, that she was a blessed and chosen woman, and the child came with a prophecy. The seed of the prophet shall sit the throne and drown in flame the mountains of man baby Elizabeth became the Lamb of Columbia. Comstock knew, because of the tears, that one day Booker would come looking for the child, somehow. Desperate to prevent this, a propaganda campaign began to train the people of Columbia to recognize Booker as a false shepherd that needed to be killed. They would know him by the AD carved into his hand. One day, he would come to Columbia and he must not be allowed to reach the Lamb, Elizabeth. Lady Comstock refused to cooperate with Comstock's schemes and lies. Using the Lutest device, he saw that Lady Comstock would reveal the truth behind his prophecies in the year 1895. So, that year, he had his wife murdered. And the blame for it was cast upon a black servant girl named Daisy Fitzroy. Daisy fled the Comstock House and went underground, so to speak. She went to hiding. Her hatred for Comstock and what the founders and the people of Columbia were doing to minorities within the city set into motion the creation of an opposing faction called the Vox Populi. The general population of Columbia happily endorsed racism and slavery, using minorities for labor without compensation and abusing them openly. Though, just that descriptor is mild compared to what was actually happening in Colombia. And there's so much to be angry about in the world, I can't lend more anger here. The founders, and those who support them, are animals and trash. The Vox Populi would become an answer to their brutality many years later. After the death of Lady Comstock, Robert and Rosalind Lutes used their Lutes device to peer into the future of Colombia, and saw doom brought upon the world at the hands of Elizabeth. To write this, they schemed a way to remove the still-toddler Elizabeth from Columbia to return her to where she came from, but Comstock caught on to their plot and ordered a weasel of a man named Jeremiah Fink to sabotage the Lutess device, killing the Lutesses. But strangely, though in a sense they died in the reality of Columbia, They rather gained the ability to reality jump at will to whatever time and place they deemed themselves needed. It freed them from the restraints of quantum physics, in a way. And right to Booker's doorstep they went, at just the time and place that it was appropriate to do so. But, more on that later. First, let's talk about Elizabeth Comstock, who was born Anna DeWitt. Remember when baby Elizabeth was taken through that tear, the one that lopped off her pinky? Well, because of that, Elizabeth doesn't really turn out to be a normal girl. You see, because she left a physical part of herself in that reality with Booker, her pinky, she exists in two worlds. And when the baby showed up in Colombia, random reality tears began popping up around the city, which was of course terrifying to the people of Columbia. Elizabeth was causing this. This baby was extremely dangerous. Comstock had her locked into a structure called Monument Island, where she could be contained, isolated, and controlled. She spent all of her developing years in that tower. But first, let's talk about those rifts that popped up when she arrived, because it's about to get real weird, and the payoff won't come until later. So remember Jeremiah Fink the sleaze weasel that sabotaged the Lutece device and supposedly killed Robert and Rosalind. Well, Fink is a bit of a genius jackass businessman and is stupidly rich, a real Elon Musk of this world. Fink is in real tight with Comstock and has a lot of power in Columbia. About a year after baby Elizabeth is brought to Columbia, Fink takes a real interest in these tears. He learns from his brother that there's actually something on the other side. So... Fink starts poking around and through one of these tears, gets his hands on the research of someone from another time and another place, a Dr. Yi Suchong from the underwater city of Rapture. Oh, ho, ho, you see where this is going, right? Uh oh. Fink steals samples of and notes on something called Adam, a substance that can rewrite a person's genetic makeup. Adam was discovered in a sea slug at Rapture and used to make something called plasmids. In Colombia, it created vigors. Plasmids are consumed through the stomach, vigors are injected. They give people abilities such as pyro fingers, icy hands, windy limbs, or shocking digits. It's like having a superpower very sciencey, very cool. Fink and Chong also inadvertently collaborate in creating designs for Big Daddies in Rapture and something called a Songbird in Columbia. So this is our first connection between the reality of Columbia in the early 1900s and Rapture in the mid-1900s. More on Rapture later. For now, let's get back to the story of Elizabeth in Monument Island. She grew up a very lonely child, unbeknownst to her being watched through the mirrors in her expansive prison by Comstock's researchers. It's just as gross and inappropriate as you might imagine it to be. Elizabeth spent her time alone reading books, sewing, painting, practicing lockpicking, and opening tears to peer into other realities. Yes, she can open them on command. She's like a walking test device. Even with this ability, and despite her loneliness, Elizabeth never left the tower for long. She always felt compelled to go back. Perhaps for family, she would reason to herself. To keep her from wandering away from Columbia through these tears, the Lutestas created a siphon when she was around 13 years old to drain her ability to open them. They put a number of these around Columbia to really ensure that Elizabeth can be suppressed all within Columbia. Elizabeth's only companion in Monument Island is the Songbird. When she was young, the songbird was not loyal to Elizabeth and had no regard for her. Fink could not get the songbird to imprint on Elizabeth. It was a useless protector. It wasn't until the gigantic thing crashed into her tower did that change. The young girl saw the songbird was in distress, that its oxygen feed was disconnected. She showed the songbird compassion and helped it. This caused the songbird to imprint on Elizabeth. Something that Fink and all his experimentations couldn't accomplish. And when Elizabeth was young, she saw the songbird as a friend. He would bring her toys and candy and books and treats. But as she aged, she saw the songbird for what it truly was. The prison warden. It was there to keep people out and to keep her in. Because of the siphon preventing her from leaving the tower, the barrier doors of her home and the oversight of the songbird, Elizabeth spent her formative teenage years intent on finding a way to escape, though she was never able to do so on her own. Now we have some background. Let's get back to Booker DeWitt in the fateful year of 1912. It's been nearly 20 years since he sold his baby. The supposedly dead Lutesses, knowing what Comstock and Elizabeth will inflict upon mankind, hire Booker for a job. They will send him to a place called Columbia, and there he is to retrieve a girl named Elizabeth and return her to New York unharmed. The Lutesses open a tear in his office, a door to Comstock's reality. When he passes through, he loses some very particular memories related to baby Anna and his deal with Robert Lutess. As far as Booker is concerned, he's just going to some weird city in the sky to collect some girl in a tower. They take him to a lighthouse, dump him off at the dock, and just kind of leave him there. Inside he finds a dead body, a note saying be prepared, he's on his way, you must stop him, signed C. There are departure and returning schedules for Columbia tacked up, stitchings of Columbia propaganda, and at the top a launchable pod that will take him into the skies. What they especially don't tell Booker upon his hiring is that they've done this before. In fact, they've done it 123 times now. And each Booker has failed. Every single time. But maybe this time he'll get it right. Maybe this Booker will have what it takes. The Luteces have this amazing ability to give the tiniest amount of intervention and information possible for maximum impact. Though it's probably from practice at this point though. So Up Booker flies. And congratulations, we're now in the year 1912 with Booker DeWitt, entering the floating city of Columbia. We're at the start of Bioshock Infinite. Applause all around! Firm handshake to you, my friend. We made it. Despite the ugliness of the people who reside on the top side of Columbia, it is truly amazing. It is pristine and beautiful and magical and a feat of science and what I wouldn't give for the city of Columbia in VR, minus the religion, racism, and propaganda. Booker really isn't paid any mind when he arrives. He's ushered out into the city, travels through the reenactments of Comstock's baptism, takes a dunk in a pool, remembers selling his daughter to Robert lutess sees a future New York city being destroyed by Columbia zeppelins, is welcomed into activities, and prodded along by the Lutesses all very normal. Though at this point, Booker doesn't really know who the Lutesses are. Seeing Robert Lutess doesn't mean anything to him at this point. It's been 20 years, and traveling between realities seems to have blocked out a few key memories of what happened all that time ago. The vision he had of New York being destroyed far in the future is an overlap. He is seeing what Comstock knows will come to pass when Elizabeth takes over Columbia, and it will happen in 1983. It's the raining of fire upon the mountains of men, the destruction of Sodom, God's supposed judgment upon those dirty sinners who reside on earth. But Booker doesn't know this. He doesn't know any of this. He couldn't even wager a guess as to what it meant. All he knows is he's got to find a girl named Elizabeth and deliver her to New York unharmed. A celebration is occurring within the city, the 10th anniversary of Colombia's secession from the Union. You see, about 10 years before all this, the floating city of Colombia had bombarded Peking, today known as Beijing, China, with artillery during the Boxer Rebellion. This opened the world's eyes to the fact that, really, Colombia was a floating fortress, and was armed to the teeth. And when they were ordered to stand down by the American government, Colombia instead said, go pound sand, and seceded from the union. Anyways, their secession is being celebrated on this day. Parades, fairs, game booths, barbecues, all kinds of festivities. And it's great for a while. Until we meet Jeremiah Fink. Jeremiah Fink is on a stage holding a raffle. A raffle to throw the first baseball at an interracial couple. And it just so happens that Booker DeWitt won the raffle. And oh boy, it is a problematic scene. But it really establishes just what Booker is dealing with in Columbia. Booker instead tries to pelt Fink with the baseball, but is caught by the Popo, who can't help but notice the A.D. Booker has scarred into the back of his hand. Comstock had been warning the people of Columbia for years about the false shepherd, the man with A.D. on his hand, who would arrive one day to steal away the lamb of Columbia, Elizabeth. The police force and the founders of Columbia begin to hunt Booker, intent on stopping this false shepherd. His task just got a lot more complicated, though the Lutesses did warn him against participating in the raffle. They told him not to choose number 77, but I guess it couldn't be helped, could it? It is an absolute mud-slinging brawl to reach Monument Island, where his target is being held. He climbs all the way to the top, past the siphon and the abandoned posts of the Comstock researchers, up to Elizabeth's sprawling living quarters. He sees her open a small tear to Paris, where she's apparently intent on going. Booker bang bangs into her library, making his introduction, meeting a young woman not quite 20 years old who needs little motivation to get out of the tower. Elizabeth has been waiting for a way out for almost seven years at this point. She practically leads the charge, which lands them right in the warpath of her guardian, the Songbird, summoned through the pipe set inside these Comstock Patriot statues with the notes. C A G It is not a containable force when Elizabeth is threatened or uncontained. Booker never even attempts to fight this thing. All they can do is escape it and hide. They decide that the massive airship called the First Lady is their best bet in getting away from Columbia. Booker's presence would have all airfields under lockdown. The First Lady is one of the few airships still in the air. Booker lies to Elizabeth, creating a poor foundation for their partnership. He tells her that if they can reach it, he'll get her to Paris, the place he knows she wants to go more than anything else, though he has no intention of actually doing this. He's taking her to New York, one way or another. When they reach the First Lady, and Booker puts in the coordinates for New York, Elizabeth knows it, and she calls him on it. She has spent years studying the world and dreams of going to Paris. She knows its longitude and latitude, so Booker spills the beans. He's on a job to get her, to take her to New York, and he's doing it for money. Sure, Elizabeth cries, Booker tries to get her to stop, and she promptly takes a wrench to his two-timing face. She leaves him on the First Lady heading for Finkton, the production center of Jeremiah Fink, to stow away on one of the cargo barges there. When Booker comes to, he meets the Vox Populi and Daisy Fitzroy, who have commandeered the ship for themselves. Remember, the Vox Populi was founded after Daisy Fitzroy took the blame for Lady Comstock's murder back in 1895. At this point, the Vox are a full underground militant force and they are ready for all-out war with the Founders and the people of Columbia. They sure as hell are not some do-gooders. In fact, there's something about the Vox that seems quite predatory. It's just not quite right. But they have control over the First Lady now. And sure, Booker can have it back if he goes to Finkton and gets them weapons. Well, not a lot of choice here, kid. Looks like Booker's going to collect some weapons for these people. He finds Elizabeth along the way, but can't con her into cooperation this time. She's not someone that he's going to be able to control. So he asks for a truce and a partnership. They both have a vested interest in getting away from Colombia. So they come to an agreement to just get away from the floating city and then figure out the whole Paris thing later. Besides. She can't reach Paris if she can't get away from Columbia in the first place. They might as well work together and get the First Lady back. It's their only shot at this point. So to Finkton they go in search of a weaponsmith named Chen Lin. And you can guess by the name, I'm sure, that Mr. Lin was not a well-respected member of Columbia, regardless of his skill as a machinist. Instead, he allied himself with the Vox Populi as a weaponsmith. But, by the time Booker and Elizabeth arrive, Mr. Lynn has been taken by Fink's goons and beaten to death during interrogation. Therefore, Booker and Elizabeth cannot complete their task. The weapons don't exist. Strange that Robert and Rosalind Lutes should appear here. Hmm. Well, not so strange. They're the Quantum Twins. Everything and nothing they do is just pants on heads insane. But, They're not really here to help Booker, rather their conversation to both and neither of them is really for Elizabeth. When Mr. Lin's body is viewed from a different perspective, a different reality, well, he's quite alive. Or at least, he's not here in this cell. They show this to them, a different Columbia, and it's a little bump, a little assistance for Elizabeth to show her that she can open tears to other Columbia's, to other realities, where perhaps the circumstances are just right to make their way through this obstacle. Well, hold on now. What happens here is they go to this new Columbia and find Mr. Lin alive, but in a broken mental state due to his death in the other reality and its overlap into this one and his tools aren't in his workshop. In fact, his tools are massive and can't be carried. So they go to another Columbia, after this dead end, to a reality where Chen Lin's tools are in his workshop, and he was able to create weapons for the Vox. However, upon arrival in this reality, Chen Lin and his wife are both dead and the weapons the Vox need for their uprising are already gone. Therefore, eliminating the need for Booker and Elizabeth to accomplish their task for Daisy Fitzroy. Calling the task done, they backtrack to search for the First Lady. And we see the Vox popularize revolt in this Columbia. It is bloody, over the top, and merciless. Columbia citizens are being gunned down in the street. They're being tortured and made to suffer immensely. The city is being destroyed section by section. In this reality, another Booker DeWitt existed in Colombia. It was a Booker that felt no remorse for his actions at Wounded Knee. It was a violent Booker that reveled in vengeance. He became an inspiring figure for the Vox, a central figurehead of the revolution. He was close to Daisy and beloved in the underground. This Booker was killed and became a martyr for the Vox. And when Daisy comes across Booker, she is enraged by the imposter, turning Vox forces against them. Now all armed forces in Colombia are hostile to Booker and Elizabeth. Oh, good. Good, 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 good. However, what we do not get to see is Daisy is visited by Robert and Rosalind Lutes. The Quantum Twins explain that the Vox will fail, Columbia will carry on, and many years from now, it will rain hellfire on the Earth below. To prevent this, Daisy must do something for Elizabeth. She must change her heart. She must harden it. She must force Elizabeth's hand. Elizabeth must kill Daisy. If Daisy wants to stop Comstock, it won't be done via the Vox. It will happen because of Elizabeth, but the young woman is still too soft. Daisy must inspire her to kill. And Daisy agrees to do this in the name of vengeance. She has spent two decades building a force to stop Comstock and Fink and the founders. For a long, long time, Daisy Fitzroy has been ready to sacrifice everything to this cause. Daisy has Jeremiah Fink in her custody, killing him is not so difficult. She does it in front of Booker and Elizabeth. Daisy also has Fink's young son in her custody. She takes a child and acts out that she is going to murder him. The Luteces told her just what to do and where to do it to get Elizabeth to act. And Daisy performs beautifully. Elizabeth murders her with a pair of shears, saving the supposedly endangered child in the process. It was difficult for both parties. But it had to be done. Booker and Elizabeth make it back to the First Lady, only to be taken down by the Songbird. So much for all that effort and planning. And of course, who should just suddenly and conveniently pop up but the Quantum Twins? Strange how the Songbird is summoned, right? Some pipes from the Comstock Patriot machines. What does it mean? How does it work? Oh well, You know, the Comstock house is right over there. Maybe you should go ask Comstock himself how it works. Maybe you should go over to the Comstock house. Ha 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 and gone. Yeah, they're a bit confusing, but they appear at just the right times with just enough information to get Booker and Elizabeth going. So off to the Comstock house, it seems. To reach the Comstock house, they need clearance. They need to be a Comstock. The only two Comstocks are Zachary Comstock and his deceased wife Annabelle Comstock. Though Elizabeth looks quite a lot like Lady Comstock, they're obviously not the same person. Her fingerprints don't match. As a side note, the realities of Bioshock build off of constants and variables. The wife of Zachary Hale Comstock, this Annabelle, is a mirror of the partner Booker DeWitt lost during childbirth, so yes, Lady Comstock and Elizabeth would indeed look like mother and daughter, though they were not. To bypass this door, they need Lady Comstock's hand. Luckily, her corpse was sealed in a glass casket and maintained for public display at a tomb nearby. A bit of a pilgrimage destination for believers in the Comstock prophecies, or perhaps just a tourist destination. At the tomb, a siphon is triggered, a much smaller version of the siphon that suppressed Elizabeth at Monument Island, which uses Elizabeth to bring an apparition of Lady Comstock into being. This is not the actual Lady Comstock. It is what Elizabeth imagined her to be, combined with the hatred and rage Elizabeth held towards her. As this siren rampages around the district, it opens tears to past realities experienced by Lady Comstock. And these tears reveal a lot to Elizabeth. They show her that the Comstocks are not her parents. Zachary Comstock is sterile, and Lady Comstock believed her to be the bastard child from her husband's supposed infidelity. Lady Comstock did not want to be a tool for her husband. She grew to hate and resent them both. And Zachary Comstock had her murdered out of fear that she would go public with the information about him. Elizabeth learns that her past is linked to the Lutesses and these tears that they open, and that the Lutesses were murdered to prevent their intervention in Elizabeth's future. But still, Booker doesn't get it. He doesn't remember baby Anna or recognize that Elizabeth is his own blood. Elizabeth and this apparition of Lady Comstock have a short, hostile conversation that ends in an understanding. They were both victims of a cruel man zachary comstock maybe there exists a place where lady comstock never met him or a reality where she saved him was that even possible lady comstock wrecking balls through the gate barring them from the comstock house granting them passage it feels like the final length of the journey until he returns the songbird Booker is lucky that the monstrous machine didn't break every bone in his body. Elizabeth understands that the songbird doesn't act on emotion. Its only job is to protect Elizabeth. So, she begs for the songbird's attention and asks him to take her back home. That's all the songbird ever wanted to do. So, it leaves Booker alone, as he's no longer a threat to Elizabeth's safe keeping. The two fly away. The Comstock House, leaving Booker to find his own way. Outside, there's a sudden, massive electrical storm going on. The bridge to the Comstock House is down, and we can very clearly see a tear rippling through it. Booker charges through the storm, across the bridge, and straight into the tear, though it doesn't appear that he's at all aware of what he just did. At the other side of the bridge, heavy snowfall is taking place. He's clearly not in the same time or the same place, or maybe both, who created this tear. Throughout the Comstock House, there are small tears that tell a story. During the timeline of these tears, it has been at least six months since Songbird took Elizabeth. She has been tortured, siphoned, and indoctrinated though these have not yet had their desired effects. Elizabeth is still quite resistant to their brainwashing attempts. Booker runs through the Comstock house, searching for her, and he does find her, though it's not what he expected. It's rather confusing, even by Comstock standards. Elizabeth is elderly, at least 90 years old at this point. It is 1984, and Columbia is destroying New York City. It's the beginning of the destruction foresaw and desired by Comstock. Elizabeth explains that it wasn't the torture or the indoctrination that broke her. It was time. It was the years and years of Comstock's treatment that broke her. She became exactly what he prophesied, but even now she hates it and she wants to undo it. She opened the tear on that bridge and brought Booker here and left tears of her memories along the way, so he would know the consequences of his failures this time. And as a parting gift, she sends him back to the proper timeline and reality with a message for her younger self. An answer for a future problem. When Booker finds Elizabeth, the torture and experimentation has only just begun. She's being siphoned and once the siphon is shut down, Elizabeth becomes a bit more in touch with her old power levels. With this siphon shut down, really the only one left in Columbia suppressing Elizabeth, is the massive one back at Monument Island. She's able to open up a massive rift, to some place being destroyed by a tornado, just on command, to clear out the Comstock scientists running the operation. It's surprisingly violent, and she doesn't hesitate. The killing of Daisy Fitzroy really did serve a purpose, didn't it? And Elizabeth is hellbent at this point on killing Comstock, not fleeing the city with Booker, though he begs her to consider this option. No, she wants Comstock dead. And if he gets in the way, she'll have no qualms flinging him into a tornado as well. Though Booker promises that he will kill Comstock for her. Comstock is on a ship called the Hand of the Prophet. When they find him, Comstock is surprisingly gentle and apologetic to Elizabeth. He only wanted what was best for her, to protect her. He is also extremely manipulative and immediately takes efforts to turn Elizabeth against Booker by teasing out information about her past and accusingly poses the question to Booker about Elizabeth's missing pinky. Booker starts remembering, though he doesn't realize it at first. He screams out, You cut off her finger. And you put it on me? That rage and violence from Booker's past comes right to the forefront before they can get answers from Comstock. Booker beats his head against a baptism vase and drowns him in the pool. She immediately demands answers from him, asking what he meant with his outburst. What did Booker know about her missing Pinky? Though at this point, he still really doesn't know. He doesn't remember. It was a confusing outburst for him, too. Their only remaining option is destroying the primary massive siphon still at Monument Island so that Elizabeth can open a tear. The Vox are still attacking and destroying the city. The founders are hunting for them, and there's no way out of Columbia at this point. But How are they supposed to get back there? The hand of the prophet is going to be a death trap soon. Reinforcements are on the way. And finally, finally, Elizabeth figures out what the message Booker brought back from 1984 is. It's the instructions for how to summon and control Songbird. Take a whistle from the Comstock Patriot machine and call it with the notes C-A-G-E. Well. Songbird tears through the Vox and Founder airships encroaching on the hand of the prophet. And once they're out of the way, he destroys the Monument Island siphon. Now Elizabeth has no power restriction. There's nothing to keep her from freely opening tears to any place, any time. She can see doorways to different realities. She knows what's behind each one. It's limitless. To escape the madness of Columbia, she opens a tear to a place called Rapture, an underwater city from the future. And she ends the songbird. She doesn't need him anymore. It's time to let go of her old friend and prison warden. They enter a machine called a bathysphere, a mini submarine that takes them to the surface, to a lighthouse. Passing through the doors of the lighthouse together, Elizabeth guides him through the infinite place, where each star in the sky is actually a doorway to another reality, another time, another place, another door. Every reality is different but the same. They're made of constants and variables. There's always a lighthouse, always a man, always a city. They even see different versions of themselves, walking along the docks of the many lighthouses. Elizabeth knows the truth about her origins. She knows about Booker's choices in the past, how she became like this, from parts of her existing in two realities. She's much like the Lutesses now, existing everywhere and anywhere at will, though she can create realities from her own imagining. But Booker's eyes haven't been opened. He doesn't remember what he did. So, gently, Elizabeth guides him to the truth. And when he remembers, he's horrified at himself. Elizabeth explains that though Comstock is dead within the reality that they were just in, there are a million, million realities in which he still lives. So to finally stop Comstock, they must prevent him from ever being born. They can't just let Comstock continue. They have to end his life early, so Elizabeth shows Booker the birth Of Comstock at that river of baptism. To kill Comstock would mean killing Booker before he had a chance to accept it. Kill Booker before realities split. Many versions of Elizabeth appear at the river and lay Booker into the water, and he doesn't fight back as they drown him. Ending Booker DeWitt, Zachary Hale Comstock, Columbia, and Elizabeth. Well, all Elizabeths, except our Elizabeth, she's the only one left, existing outside reality with all the memories and thoughts that once lived on in the million, million other Elizabeths that existed before the death of Booker DeWitt. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We're going to a new time and a new place. Let's get acquainted with a man named Andrew Ryan, the mastermind and founder of the underwater city called Rapture. Ryan was born in Minsk, now called Belarus, under the Russian Empire presumably at the start of the 20th century, let's say the year 1900. Russia had become an extremely impoverished country, and after the Russian Revolution in 1917, Ryan's family had lost all their wealth. Belarus struggled for autonomy, with a World War I Germany knocking at their door, and the Red Army of Russia pushing across their border. A Marxist faction called the Bolsheviks were rising to power and preying upon the people of Russia. The Bolsheviks killed parts of Ryan's family, and in 1919, Ryan fled Russia for America. He had a deep-seated hatred for anything other than unregulated capitalism. He hated communism, socialism, the government, the poor, the working class, his peers, taxes, rules, laws, morals. Andrew Ryan hated pretty much everything but himself and his own wealth. So, he really flourished in America. He got wealthy. Very, very wealthy. But Andrew Ryan's resentments towards social programs, or possibly fear of them, began to rise in the pre-World War II era of the 1930s, as America was pulling out of the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. He began calling people who participated in or benefited from these social programs, parasites. Anyone in the lower, middle, and or working class who needed aid to recover from the tumultuous time that was the Great Depression was considered a parasite by Ryan. In 1945, the U.S. dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima. This was the line in the sand for Ryan. Parasites with weapons. He wanted no more to do with it. So, in 1945, he began planning for the construction of Rapture in secret sure that if the US government found out, then he would be stopped. Rapture was meant to be a capitalist utopia, free from government interference, taxation, censorship, or moral obligations. It was a city meant for the geniuses of society to work their craft without oversight or limitations, where the dregs would be allowed only to act in service of those higher thinkers. Rapture would still need janitors, builders, maintenance men, and servants after all. Rapture was built in the northern Atlantic Ocean. It took only a year for parts of the city to be inhabitable, and by 1948, the city was practically fully functional. Remember our theme of constants and variables between the cities of Columbia and Rapture. Under the rule of Comstock and the founders in Colombia, there was a time that the city flourished alongside their ideals. The same with Rapture. Under the rule of Andrew Ryan and his Central Council, Rapture also flourished for some time alongside their ideals. Now let's talk about something called Adam again. In Colombia, Booker used vigors to enhance his abilities. In Rapture, Adam was discovered by a woman named Brigid Tenenbaum A sea slug had attached to the crippled hand of a laborer, healing it. Tenenbaum studied this event and the sea slug, finding that the slug secreted something she called atom. But the slug didn't naturally secrete enough of this atom to be useful at a practical level, either for research or for small-scale usage. Rapture was a city that encouraged innovation and discovery at any cost, so, Tenenbaum began serious research into the atom with the support of an entrepreneur named Frank Fontaine. She introduced the sea slug into host bodies, finding that when placed into a human's stomach, it produced large amounts and potent quantities of atom, though it wasn't a consistent or viable process as it tended to kill the host. The only beings that could live with the slug were female children. In Rapture, this was not a problem. Frank Fontaine opened up orphanages as a front to get more of these girls, and it worked. Harvesting of Adam went through the roof, and residents of Rapture became obsessed with Adam and these new things called plasmids, which were refined Adam. Demand was far too high for what could actually be produced, though. Fontaine was able to convince Yi Su Chong to work alongside Tenenbaum at Fontaine Futuristics to figure out this problem. Dr. Su Chong originally worked for Andrew Ryan, but Ryan wasn't the most consistent of patrons. Jeremiah Fink of Columbia and Yi Su Chong of Rapture had "quote unquote" worked together through reality tears on their versions of Adam, which made vigors in Columbia and plasmids in Rapture. I said work together, but remember, they were mostly just stealing notes and ideas from each other through the tears. It was through this that Chong discovered how to make Adam drinkable, and Fink discovered how to make it injectable. Constants and variables, digestible and injectable options made it available to all. But see, here is another really big problem with all this. Adam in Rapture was extremely addictive. It had nasty withdrawals and mentally degraded the user, causing dementia-like effects and violent outbursts. But to Fontaine, Tenenbaum, and Suchong, while this really wasn't a reason to stop their research or sales of their plasmids, addicts who fell into violence became known as Splicers. To help alleviate the need to create new Atom, Suchong discovered that Atom could be harvested from dead Splicers. The young girls used to create Adam became known as little sisters. Tenenbaum began conditioning them for the physical job of harvesting Adam from splicer corpses. Su Chong began conditioning them for it mentally. The mental conditioning was extremely difficult. Of course, a little girl wouldn't want to shove huge needles into corpses. So, Su Chong made them think that the corpses were angels and made the Little Sisters see the world around them as bright and beautiful. They compulsively felt a need to go to these angels and harvest them. And a bonus! Because of their Adam production, the Little Sisters were difficult to harm. The Little Sisters were publicly touted as the little saviors of rapture. But amidst Adam shortages, those most desperate for a fix knew exactly where a walking, talking source of Adam was the Little Sisters. It became clear that the Little Sisters could not be left to walk around Rapture alone. They would need a guardian. So the creation of the Big Daddies began. Elizabeth had her songbird in Columbia. A Little Sister would have her Big Daddy in Rapture. Constants and Variables. But as with the Songbird of Columbia, the Big Daddies wouldn't bond with their Little Sisters. The Little Sisters were frightened of them, and who would blame them? The Big Daddies were men that were spliced into massive diving suits. They didn't speak, they looked scary, and they didn't especially care about the Little Sisters at first. Prisoners from the Rapture Prison were used as test subjects in the creation of the Big Daddies. No one would miss them. It's at this point in the mid-1950s that there are two prisoners of note. One is a woman, Dr. Sophia Lamb. Dr. Lamb came to Rapture in the year 1950 to offer her services as a psychiatrist, though Dr. Lamb's altruism didn't really fit in with the ideals of Rapture. She offered her services to the lower class of Rapture in Popper's Drop for free. Her care for their well being made them loyal to her, something that caught Andrew Ryan's attention and his ire. Her influence grew amongst the downtrodden, and Ryan took action against it. The last thing he cared to have within Rapture was an empowered servant class. The freedoms, supposedly afforded to the genius minds of Rapture, were only allowed if they aligned with the ideology of Andrew Ryan, and if they didn't compete with Andrew Ryan, and if they played by Andrew Ryan's rules. Sophia Lamb didn't play by his rules. so. She was put into the Persephone Penal Colony in 1955. Her young daughter, Eleanor, was safely hidden away in the Pauper's Drop. The other prisoner of note is an unnamed man who would eventually become Subject Delta. Delta was the first Alpha Series Big Daddy to successfully bond with a little sister in 1958. This was a breakthrough in the process, as before it had involved Manipulations with pheromones and big daddies were extremely unstable should they lose their little sister. We'll talk more about Dr. Lamb and Delta in a while. I'd like to tell you a dirty little secret. A few dirty little secrets, in fact. Andrew Ryan had a few mistresses. One, Diane McClintock was very close to Ryan, more akin to a girlfriend or a partner than a mistress. But Ryan also regularly bedded an exotic dancer named Jasmine Jolene. And as luck would have it, in 1956 Jasmine got pregnant. Jasmine decided to sell the fertilized embryo to Frank Fontaine in an effort to gain some financial stability and to avoid having to tell Andrew Ryan about the pregnancy. Dr. Bridget Tenenbaum approached her with this offer to keep Frank Fontaine's involvement a secret. But Andrew Ryan did indeed find out much later in 1960, and he murdered her because of it. But remaining back in 1956, Dr. Tenenbaum and Dr. Su Chong grew the baby in secret and experimented on it with something called Lot 111. See, children were not valued in rapture. They were slow to grow, offered little to society, and took immense resources to bring up. Lot 111 accelerated the baby's growth. By the age of one, this child, named Jack, had grown into a grossly formed teenager. Jack was a backup plan to use against Andrew Ryan. Suchong and Tenenbaum turned Jack into a sleeper agent of sorts, his activation trigger being would you kindly. For example, would you kindly eat this apple? Would you kindly open this door? Would you kindly? go and murder Andrew Ryan. Jack's body evened out with time into a full-fledged adult by the time he was two years old. He was smuggled out of Rapture, back up to land, and given false memories. Now, we're in the year 1958. In September, Frank Fontaine and Andrew Ryan were in open conflict with each other. Fontaine was a threat to Ryan's power in Rapture. Fontaine was an aggressive and successful businessman. He was building upon the Atom business, he owned orphanages, he owned businesses, he was a massive employer, he had labs and research centers, he was a smuggler of topside goods into Rapture. He was gunning for Ryan's seat of power, so Ryan ordered him arrested. Can't have competition now, can we? Frank Fontaine faked his death during a shootout with Andrew Ryan's forces. He had cosmetic surgery done to take a new identity, Atlas. He posed as a visionary, a leader of the people, a revolutionary who who would take down Andrew Ryan at any cost. Atlas united the downtrodden of Rapture to protest against Andrew Ryan whenever the opportunity arose. Eventually, Atlas helped his growing numbers amass weapons and plasmids. He sowed the seeds and prepared them for civil war. They were his new tools to topple over the empire of Andrew Ryan. Remember this man that we know as Atlas. Remember him for what he really is, a mirror image of Andrew Ryan in his greed. Andrew Ryan has the Fontaine buildings sunk. Atlas and his men, the innocent people left in the buildings who would just become splicers, are abandoned to sink to the ocean floor in a new prison designed just for them by Andrew Ryan. Dr. Tenenbaum went into hiding, beginning to feel shame and guilt for the torment they'd inflicted on the little sisters. She began working on a cure to their condition, a way to return them to normal. Oh, we've done it. Can you believe it? We've set up the backstory for Rapture. Another round of butt slaps and handshakes all around. Now, let's get this story going. We'll begin with another connection between Columbia and Rapture. You see, one of the Zachary Comstocks escaped, much like a single Elizabeth existed outside the destruction of Booker's bloodline. This Comstock had gone to rapture in his reality through a tear. See, in this particular reality, when Comstock and Booker fought over baby Elizabeth after Robert Lutess bought her, well, she didn't lose a pinky. She lost her her head. They decapitated the baby when the tear closed. Big yikes, and Comstock felt immense guilt over this. The Lucettes open a tear for him to Rapture, really driving home that he is a terrible man who's incapable of facing the consequences of his actions. Comstock loses his memories of being Comstock when he goes through the tear, reverting back to Booker DeWitt. He sets up shop in Rapture in the mid-1950s under his original name, Booker DeWitt, and just lived a new life there. Until December 31st, 1958, when Elizabeth shows up and she hires him for a job. Find a girl named Sally. This Booker knows this girl. She was an orphan that he took in after the Little Sister orphanages were shut down when Frank Fontaine supposedly died. Andrew Ryan was in control of them now. Andrew Ryan was in control of the Little Sister and Big Daddy operations. Some of the girls who weren't conditioned to perform as little sisters were just turned away to fend for themselves. Or is it more correct to say that they escaped the conditioning? Anyways, Sally wasn't with Booker for long. In this reality, Booker was still an alcoholic and a gambler. While he was occupied with his vices, Sally was taken. Booker believed that she'd drown at a dock, but she was collected for the little sister program. He accepted her supposed death as a fact and made no effort to search out more answers as to what happened to Sally, though he did fall deeper into his depression and addiction. So when this strange woman named Elizabeth shows up offering him work in finding Sally, he takes her up on the offer, not fully believing that Sally is alive, but willing to go along with her proposal for now. Much to Booker's surprise, they do actually track down this little sister. She was in one of the Fontaine buildings that was sunk to the ocean floor by Andrew Ryan. Booker has to contend with her guardian, a very angry big daddy. He has a chance to grab Sally to pull her out of a broiling vent, and his struggle with the girl reminds him of something reminds him of another struggle he once had involving a small girl. He starts to remember his actions as Comstock that led to baby Elizabeth being decapitated. See, much like the Lutesses, this Elizabeth isn't bound by time or space. She sees all the doors, she knows all the possibilities. This Comstock couldn't hide from her, and she knew just what to do to take revenge on him to make him suffer. Sally's big daddy grants the final Comstock, the final Booker DeWitt, a gruesome and fitting death. Then, Elizabeth leaves the girl. In this rapture, Elizabeth dies, though that doesn't matter. Within her own reality, her own version of Paris, she walks around blissfully. People dance about, greet her by name, are elated to see her. It's her own little fake paradise the place she always dreamed Paris would be. Until she sees little Sally and she remembers that she left her. That she left all the little sisters. Elizabeth sees the doors, the possibilities, the realities, and the futures of these girls. She contributed to it, and she abandoned one of them. She feels all the remorse that she deserves for this, but because she died in that reality, well, she can't return there unless she abandons her quantum abilities. She has to be a normal woman. And because she's really the only Elizabeth left after the death of Booker DeWitt at the Baptism River, if, when she dies here, that's it. There's no returning to the infinite lighthouses and unending doorways. So is it worth it to right the wrong? Well, the alternative is never really living in reality. It's living in all the realities, therefore it's having nothing. It's empty, it's lonely, it's imaginary. So she decides it is worth it. She returns to that reality and takes up mortality, all to save this Sally to make a difference. To prove that she's more like Booker than she is like Comstock. Atlas has taken custody of Sally. To him, she's just another Adam-rich little sister. And down here in the depths of this Fontaine prison, Adam is hard to come by. Elizabeth reasons with him, telling him that if he gives her the girl, she will help him get back to Rapture. She tells a bold-faced lie, saying that she's Dr. Chong's lab assistant. She'll help raise the Fontaine building back up. And within Rapture, well, there's plenty of Adam to suit their needs. This little sister is nothing compared to what they could have. And Atlas agrees to this. Elizabeth scours the Fontaine buildings, finding a makeshift Test device in Chong's old lab. She's able to use a tear to cross back over to Columbia and take a sample of the lutece particle, the technology that makes Columbia float. Back in Rapture, she's able to use this to raise the building back up. But Atlas, or Frank Fontaine, of course backstabs Elizabeth. He sees that she is far more valuable to him than some little sister. And since she claimed to be Dr. Su Chung's lab assistant, well, then she should be able to answer a question. Where is the ace in the hole? No, it's okay. This is completely out of left field for us too. Ace in the hole. When the hell is he on about? But Atlas is adamant that Elizabeth should know exactly what he's talking about. For two weeks, Elizabeth is drugged up and interrogated. During this blackout, the 1958 New Year's Eve riot takes place. When Atlas forces rush Rapture, attacking citizens and businesses, economic and social structures in Rapture quickly begin to crumble. Violence is taking place all around the city. Citizens take to splicing themselves for self-defense. Big Daddies are deployed with every little sister. Dr. Sophia Lamb, escapes from prison, amassing a following in Poppers Drop, and begins searching for her daughter Eleanor. Eleanor was turned into a little sister. She was the first little sister to bond to a big daddy, the Alpha series called Delta, that we learned about earlier. Eleanor is no longer herself, but she's at least in the safekeeping of Delta until Sophia learns of this and tracks them down. She uses a plasmid mind control on him and forces Delta to shoot himself in the head, much to Eleanor's horror. This event will have consequences for Sophia, Eleanor, and Rapture itself. So, Elizabeth wakes up two weeks into a civil war. The drugging and interrogations haven't worked because Elizabeth doesn't know what this ace in the hole is. And she can't really see between time and space on demand anymore, so she doesn't know what he's talking about. When Atlas brings out Sally, threatening to lobotomize the little girl, Elizabeth is able to see through the infinite space one final time. Guided by the visage of Booker, her father and friend, he shows her where she can find this ace in the hole. In Chong's clinic, in Rapture. Atlas and his men can't get near the clinic. Andrew Ryan's defense turret would tear them apart. So, Elizabeth goes instead. And there, she actually comes across the famed Dr. Chong, And she watches him in his clinic. After he backhands a little sister and is taken down by her guardian, Big Daddy. Next to his corpse, she finds it. The activation words for Jack. Would you kindly... That's what Atlas meant by Ace in the Hole, the trigger words to bring him back to Rapture and under his control, his weapon against Andrew Ryan during the dire hour. Elizabeth returns it to Atlas and decodes it for him, and to repay her efforts, he kills her. But he doesn't kill Sally. And this time, there's no going back. This is the end of Elizabeth's story. A year later, in 1960, Jack got onto a plane over the Atlantic, holding a present supposedly from his family, though remember, he was given false memories. A note on the package says, would you kindly not open until 63 by two degrees north, 29 by 55 degrees west. Coordinates that put the plane at the lighthouse above rapture. Remember when Booker and Elizabeth were walking amongst the infinite lighthouses so long ago? What was it that Elizabeth said? There's always a lighthouse, always a man, always a city. Constants and variables. Inside the package is a pistol. Jack is activated and brings the plane down he's the only survivor, and within the lighthouse, he finds a bathysphere to take him to Rapture. Because he is of Andrew Ryan's bloodline, he is able to use it to enter the locked-down city deep under the ocean. Frank Fontaine immediately gets in contact with Jack, of course referring to himself as Atlas. Casually dropping requests, beginning with Would you kindly? Atlas manipulates Jack into fighting through Rapture for him, and he is Certainly an effective liar and manipulator. We never could have guessed that he had just recently beaten a woman to death and had the blood of dozens of little girls on his hands. Atlas wants Jack to reach Andrew Ryan and is not shy about would-you-kindly-ing him into killing Ryan. Tenenbaum comes out of hiding, begging Jack to help the little sisters. She's completed a treatment for them, a cure for their situation. It will free them of the mental conditioning that makes them little sisters, normalize them more, give them back their free will, let them be children again. It will involve killing the big daddies. That's unavoidable. But if Jack can get to the little sisters, he could cure them. Or he could kill them and harvest their Adam. But what kind of a monster would do something like that? That's just evil. Of course, he wouldn't do that. Jack can't save every single little sister in Rapture though, there's far too many. But he saves as many as he can reach, curing them and sending them on their way back to Dr. Tenenbaum, who is now hellbent on protecting the girls and undoing some of the damage that she caused. Jack does make it to Andrew Ryan, and cannot break free of the command to kill the man. Atlas comes clean about who he really is and thanks Jack for his cooperation by trying to kill him because, of course, that's kind of what people do down here, apparently. Dr. Tenenbaum sends cured little sisters to where Jack is to get him into the safety of the vent system and to a safe house. There, she's able to deprogram parts of Jack to remove his conditioning much the same as the little sisters. With this looming threat gone, Jack is able to choose for himself what to do next. And he has his eyes set on Frank Fontaine. He'll kill Fontaine, save as many of the little sisters as possible and get the hell away from this place. In a final stand, Fontaine has decided to go full mad lad and absolutely load himself up with Adam, turning him almost inhuman. He'll do anything to win. He'll do anything to himself. And he nearly does it too, except... Jack happens to have about a dozen little ladies on his side that are very talented when it comes to Adam harvesting and Fontaine is just bursting at the seams with the stuff. The little sisters that Jack saved along the way intervene, delivering a violently stabby death to this absolute maniac, Frank Fontaine, and good riddance. Good riddance to all of them. Jack loads up the little sisters into a bathysphere and takes them to the surface. Tenenbaum does not go with them. There are still many little sisters in Rapture that need to be seen to. Jack raises the girls like they're his own, giving them all the opportunity they need to be successful and well-rounded women. But Rapture doesn't just cease to be, of course it doesn't. What if Sophia Lamb and the Poppers Drop? All the people still fighting a civil war. All the Splicers and Little Sisters and Big Daddies. What of little Eleanor Lamb? Her mother killed her guardian, Delta, right in front of her, too. Well, as the years went on, Sophia Lamb usurped the power in the void left behind by Fontaine and Ryan. She freely studied the works of Fontaine and Ryan and Suchong and decided that Adam could be put to better use. She began experimenting on huge amounts of Adam, believing that it contained the collective thoughts and memories of all within Rapture who partook. And if an individual was loaded up with this huge amount of Adam, perhaps they could become the ultimate altruistic being, something completely selfless to serve the greater good with no regard for anything other than that. Though, we saw what happened to Frank Fontaine when he injected himself with a huge amount of atom. Perhaps, if a person is intrinsically good, it will be a different effect, though. A Dr. Gilbert Alexander volunteers for a massive injection. After little Eleanor was removed from Delta's custody, Dr. Alexander had helped bring the girl back to some sense of normalcy. The Adam treatment mutates the poor man, though, and slowly drives him insane. He's so afraid of what's happening to him, and afraid that he'll hurt someone else, that he creates instructions for anyone that finds his old lab on how to kill him, and he begs them to do so. The Gilbert Alexander rapture today is a rude, violent shadow of his former self. Sophia Lamb discovers that little sisters are the best candidates for this. They can naturally tolerate huge amounts of Adam without negative effects. And her daughter, Eleanor, becomes her test subject. She begins grooming her, forcing an extremely difficult education on her, trying to force her into the perfect behavior one would expect from a savior figure. But Eleanor remembers Delta, who she thinks of as a father and she knows what happened to Dr. Alexander. As the Little Sisters aged, they became less suited for their work. They became more violent and they became feral. Sophia Lamb called them Big Sisters and used them to patrol the streets of Rapture and to travel to the surface to take more little girls, to serve as Little Sisters in Rapture, They would need more Adam after all, and that would require more girls for the dying underwater city. In 1968, a now 16 or 17 year old Eleanor Lamb sent some little sisters out to gather Delta's genetic code. To revive him. In a Vita chamber. Though Delta is intelligent, and capable of independent thought, Once he's awakened, really all that matters to him is finding his little sister. Finding Eleanor. You could remove all the dialogue and notes and tapes and it would be just the same for Delta. Find Eleanor. I almost wonder, why are people so intent on talking to Delta as he travels through Rapture? Maybe, maybe they're lonely. Delta and Eleanor were the first of the guardian sister duo to bond. Their link is very old in this world and it is exceptionally strong. Eleanor really does think of him as her father, and she desperately misses him. As Delta goes through Rapture, Eleanor is more keen to take moral cues from Delta rather than her own biological mother. When Delta spares the little sisters and shows mercy to other people he meets along the way, Eleanor takes note of this. She learns from him and resists the cruel ideals of her mother. Sophia Lamb used to be gentle and loving and kind, but that woman is long gone. She's lost the plot, so to speak, and she's playing a dangerous game with her own daughter's life and her Adam obsession. Sophia Lamb is so desperate to be rid of Delta that once he arrives at Eleanor's chambers, she smothers the girl to sever their connection to each other. You see, when a big daddy's bond with his little sister is severed, to prevent them from going ballistic, the older models would go into a coma, a shutdown. This works for a time, though Eleanor is able to contact Delta and sends a little sister to free him. What Sophia has accomplished in all this is really just pushing Eleanor over the edge. She's desperate to get away from her mother and dons the armor of a big sister so that she can retrieve and travel with Delta. Sophia Lamb demands that they surrender, that Eleanor returns to her or she'll blow the foundations of the building to high hell and send it falling into a deep-sea trench. She's absolutely out of her mind at this point. The reunited duo decline her offer, and as this part of Rapture begins to implode and fall apart, they manage to take the Little Sisters into an escape vessel and free it from the building, but Sophia gave them a parting gift an explosive package that just barely misses Eleanor but delivers Delta a fatal wound. There won't be any coming back from that on the surface, there's no resurrection technology for big daddies on the surface. Before Delta passes away, Eleanor takes some of his atoms so they can stay together, in some form, forever, and lovingly says her goodbye. Here, at the end of this story, Eleanor stands beside the little girls they saved from Rapture. It's up to her now to lead them home.